unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. One of the most vexed questions in development studies is why the poor often receive such poor government services. The development literature is littered with hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of elite capture, weak state capacity, corruption, and subversion. But a focus on the failures obscures the fact that every once in a while, the state does get it right, and the top-down and the bottom-up meet in a place that actually produces positive benefits for ordinary citizens. How exactly this happens is the subject of a new book by the scholar Rajesh Viraragavan, Patching Development, Information Politics and Social Change in India. It's the story of how bureaucrats and civil society forged an unlikely partnership in the South Indian state of Andhra Pradesh to implement the world's largest workfare program at scale. Rajesh is an assistant professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, and I am pleased to welcome him to the show for the very first time. Rajesh, congrats on the book. Thank you, Mullen. Wonderful uh, to be with you. So the book is concerned with a really big question, uh, which has been debated by many, many development scholars, which is, you know, how can the state best deliver benefits to the poor and marginalized in society? And you note at the start of the book that there are kind of two ends to this problem, right? You call them the first mile and then what people often refer to as the last mile. And I'm wondering if in layperson's terms, if you could just kind of describe for us, you know, what are those two ends of the spectrum and, 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 and how and where do tensions arise? Yeah, thanks. Um, so hopefully I'll be, it'll be in the layman, layperson's view, but, uh, <laughs> so at, at some level, there's a lot of scholarly attention given to by political scientists uh, and sociologists to how do you get the state to see the poor in, in Stuart Corbett's uh, words, right? In the sense that what does it take? How do you get political will? How do you get social movements mobilized to kind of get the state to uh, do welfare, implement welfare programs? Does it take... Uh, you know, uh, political competition? Uh, does it take uh, mobilization? Is it uh, social movements or decentralized collective action, uh, etc.? Uh, should we have women elected? Would that would that matter? Would that make a difference? Should we have caste politics and whatnot? So a lot of attention uh, on, and rightfully so, on thinking about uh, you know how do how do you get the state to see the poor? Uh, and development economists are also, I would say, interested in, in this. They, they come at it slightly differently, where they look at how do you implement a program or how do you design a program, rather? What is the right? Should you implement a biometrics device? Should you have a particular institutional arrangement and measure the impact of that program? And so uh, so that, that's that broadly I call that the first mile because a lot of attention, uh, rightfully deserving so, but just focuses on, on, on the question of how do you get the state to even implement programs like the NREGA, NREGA that I, that I study. Um, and the assumption being that once you have that political will, uh, the, you know, the last mile, if you will, the kind of details of the implementation either work or don't work, meaning it'll either cheer on uh, the fact that either we say politics uh, that happens or is it maybe the idea was bad? Maybe the design is bad. Maybe we need something else, right? And so this constant search for 
for uh, whether whether they are information interventions or whether they're institutional interventions. So this kind of a search for these better ideas and, and or or trivialize the politics that exist. So that's so I the last mile politics is not something that, that people have given sufficient attention, especially if you, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word success, but to look at a positive case, a case that shows some promise. And if any, the last mile, um, like the name connotates, has been given a technical imagination, right? And I hope that in this book, while I use phrases like patching and the last mile, the politics of it uh, comes through. So, so in that sense, I think there is a kind of an angle where I t- focus on the last mile, but with the with the political sensibilities that people who focus on the first mile, uh, and I bring that to hopefully to the to the last mile. So, as you mentioned, the book studies the implementation of the NREGA, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, are now known as the the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme. Uh, so, you know, in the book. You talk about how higher level bureaucrats in Andhra Pradesh dealt with local level implementation failures. And there were kind of two ways that they addressed failures, right? On the one hand, they gathered detailed information about last mile implementation. And secondly, they unlocked that information for civil society who engaged in the kinds of social audits of the program that that you just discussed. Now, you know, there are a lot of people in India and perhaps a lot of people outside who um, question both the kind of probity and the competence, not just of lower level officials, but also of higher level bureaucrats in the Indian system. But in your story, what's so interesting is it's clear that the bureaucrats in the state capital really did want to make a positive difference, right? Uh, and, and I'm wondering, sort of, why was that the case? Uh, were they empowered in some way that was special, right? You mentioned, for instance, the unique role that the uh, Andhra Pradesh Chief Minister uh, YSR played at the time. You know, help us kind of understand what was the ecosystem in which these people were working that sort of pushed them, you know, beyond what, you know, most people would expect out of ordinary bureaucrats. Yeah, so that's a nice co- connection. So I just to kind of complete the answer to the last question, I the the meeting itself, the social audit meeting itself, had an outcome which um, led to at least public shaming of the official. And but the there was no action taken right uh, by uh, by the state. So I was very interested in the phenomenon of using information and you know and 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 how how to make change and i and i and i, I was thinking okay, would it be useful to actually have a state uh, run social audits and at that time it was a very easy decision because the only one state that was an, in motion and active at that time was andhra pradesh the combined andhra pradesh and so it was um it's not that andhra pradesh had a particularly uh, a, a distinctive form of of of, uh, of 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 administration. I mean, maybe in general, the, our impression, as you said, maybe better than Bihar, but it's not that it had a particular distinctive record. So the more I dig into this, the story, the story of both the political will, the stuff that I talked about, the first while, first mile matters, kind of plays on, right? The fact that the bureau, bureaucrats kind of kick in once you actually have political support. Here, you had 
the bureaucrats in Bihar had were interested, but didn't really have the political support to kind of do a program like Andhra. So Andhra actually had, YSR was no saint. I mean, I have documented in the book and Balagopal uh, talks about it for those of listeners who want to see it in very, very colorful terms and describing in this EPW articles, was collected called Ear to the Ground, where, you know, he was, um, you know, not, you know, in Milan's book would elucidate a lot of, uh, uh, you know, kind of background. Uh, I won't say more about what you know, what pays and what what happens. How how did the uh, uh, how did he became he got to power? So the story is the exact same thing as what you what you uh, what you tell. Uh, but YSR also uh, was interested in uh, you know uh, he was part of the Congress Party and one of the biggest constituents at that time was Andhra Pradesh and you know this right Andrega was passed. Uh, because of this common minimum program between, you know, c- kind of coalition uh, between the Congress and the left parties, you know, and, and there's a lot of activists and academics uh, were also kind of priming the pipe of creating these NREG and RTI at the same time in 2005. And uh, the story goes, and others have documented, uh, you know, Diego Moirona has, has, has documented as well, and I found the same story, which is that YSR went on a Pada Yatra and uh, a, a long march, and he heard a lot of um, comments and discussions and, and, and you know, kind of uh, questions from uh, the Dalits particularly and, and workers who were left out. This was, you know, if you remember, this was the India shining campaign that uh, used to happen before Naidu kind of championed. And so this was, you know, the opposite of let's let's not make cities shine, let's make the, you know, the rural countryside work uh, and, and provide basic level of, of livelihood. So in, in that sense, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, result in a lot of uh, protests and 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 also you know um the fact that ysr represented the largest political bloc in congress uh launched in rega actually from anantapur in andhra pradesh right and so there was there was a lot of support and he handpicked uh bureaucrats some of them uh, were identified as dalits at the top um uh, and you know and 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 put and and i when i was studying this um there's a lot of stories about how he ensured that uh, that protection continued, uh, and you know some people have pointed out that I have not examined the the where does the balloons get you know where does the other parts of uh, you know the SEs and where they made money when I that was not the focus of my work, but definitely uh, the the what I heard was you could make you know your own money in other programs and other things, but let's uh, let's uh, make uh, Make these program work, and I and I I just want to add one thing. It's not somehow magically from the top. I mean, there's a there's a lot of decentralized collective action by Dalit groups uh, who actually mobilized to go around identity uh, as opposed to questions on land in Andhra over time. Think things like entering temples and and rights and 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 whatnot, public services, and so that allowed for YSR to you know, enact and, and take this implementation of this program seriously. So I just want to pause on what you just said, because it was a very interesting passage in the book. As you as you mentioned, YSR was no saint, right? And his record is there for all to see. But one of the things he did say, and he was very clear about this, is that he had particular priorities of the chief minister, and those were not to be touched. 
that yes, there was rent seeking to be had. There were programs that uh, politicians could muck around in, and those were a different sort. And it's actually a very similar story to what I remember hearing in Bihar in you know 2010 era with Nitish Kumar. Right, he had particular programs, girls' bicycle, uh, putting you know incentive programs to keep them in school. Right, which he wanted to be his signature programs, and the kind of message went out. Right, so it wasn't that there wasn't corruption and leakage and rent seeking and development programs, but but there was this prioritization, which I think is, um, uh, you know, an interesting part of the story. Uh, your book is called Patching Development, right? And when I first saw that, I actually, I had no idea what that meant until I realized that you're borrowing the term patching from the software industry, right? We're, we're all familiar with software patches. We, we need to download them to fix gaps in our software or, you know, security gaps or other gaps. But uh, maybe for our listeners, you could just kind of describe, you know, what does patching mean in a developmental context, right? And, and is there an example that you can think of that kind of illustrates how this works in practice? Yeah, no, I think yeah, patching was uh, um, was was actually an idea that uh, in the in this context, I first came for the first report I wrote as, after the field work was about patching, and I kind of dismissed it uh, and then picked it back up. And this is an idea that I actually. In this context, uh, I first encountered in a, you know, again post facto understanding of it when I was sitting in a meeting actually in in you know in the principal secretary's office in the then capital of Andhra Hyderabad, where you know he was talking about um, you know I was I was there you know if you've you've gone there you know people who are familiar with the bureaucracy you go and sit for a number of hours and then lots of people streaming in and then you you know and you barely get a time to kind of talk through. So I was kind of waiting in line and uh, and sitting, and and the, uh, the the principal secretary was kind of discussing with a bunch of software developers at that time actually about implement you know uh, imp- about this program in Brega, and, and I was had a list of questions which be deep big P politics in it, and here he was kind of talking about making a field read only in a master role, a digitized master role. He was interested in essentially trying to control how that particular uh, list of uh, worker groups can be uh, frozen. So it can't be edited uh, at the local level because he was interested in that time uh, solving this problem of how do you ensure workers are not automatically enrolled in multiple work groups because he's, you know, that was one form of corruption, if you will, where the same workers are magically made to appear in multiple work groups. And he thought one idea was to kind of freeze the work group uh, and so he was making a kind of things, what you could make things editable in the field and what you can't edit and by whom, right? And so that was a fix um, that uh, a design change in, in a master role uh, that actually has repercussions in, in terms of how, uh, who gets to change it. And the reason why it's a patch as opposed to a one-time tech fix is that that it, there's an iteration, there's a, you know, patching I kind of, have three different um, uh, descriptions, a way of thinking about our features. One, it's top-down, meaning patching, whoever issues the patch uh, is has some jurisdiction over the, you know, who the receiver, meaning there is some level of power asymmetry there. Uh, and it's a patching is a top-down process, and it's very small detail, the details about you know, who gets to edit it, who doesn't, and what, you know, and this is not about tech alone or documents alone. It's also about if you're having a social audit meeting, who, where you should you conduct the social audit meeting? Who, what what dress should you wear? What should they be allowed to eat? Should they allow to be eat, 
you know meet or should you you know and 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 what time of the day they should start what should you read right and should you re- even read this finding so it's a lot of institutional uh, features but all very small details right uh, which you don't think of uh, of usually as 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 fixes um, and then the third is iterative meaning each patch leads to solving a particular problem and it you know and, and patching is necessitated when when there's you know when you know assume or give agency to the people that who are resisting this implementing these programs right so in that sense uh, so you need an iteration iterative process where people uh, where you need to change these institutions change uh, these processes as you encounter as they encountered um, resistance to the implementation, so you would maybe in this main, in this cases you would change the time of when the meetings happen. Uh, you would not read out these findings, or you would, uh, you know, have an ID card issue, or you would have meetings held at different spots uh, rather than just having the village level, right? And so, so the idea is that has this the patching has this kind of um, resonance in the software. That's what you do, right? You kind of keep keep fixing things as as you find new problems, and so that's how I see it apply. In, in, in this context. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. And, you know, I should just mention, should have done this earlier, but for, for those who are, who are not initiated, uh, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Program uh, basically guarantees 100 days of paid labor for people residing in rural areas. It is a demand-driven program in the sense that if you come forward and want work, in theory, you are to receive work. The muster role is what captures basically uh, the workers who show up. It is a key point, uh, I guess you could say, for for, for corruption and um, uh, all kinds of shenanigans, because obviously, um, you know, those those numbers can names, numbers can be manipulated. And, and, and the fix that you're talking about was an effort to try to shrink the space for local level actors to, to manipulate that data. Um, you know, I guess this leads me to my next question, which is, you know, your, your narrative focuses a lot on local level sources of resistance. And those sources of resistance are often stymieing what are some of the best laid plans of the central or state bureaucrats, right? And so it seems like much of the patching story is about, okay, how can we devise these workarounds so that top-level bureaucrats can circumvent local-level problems? But I'm wondering about kind of what your takeaway is for how we think about decentralization as a whole, right? Because uh, it, it seems like we run into very quickly a chicken and an egg problem, right? We higher level bureaucrats and politicians don't want to decentralize too much power to the local level because they don't have any capacity and they're corrupt, but they're never going to have any capacity if we don't give them any authority. And so do you have thoughts after, you know, years of doing this work about sort of how we get out of that vicious cycle? Yeah, first I would want to start and, and, and kind of um, start off saying this is a vision that the bureaucrats who were identified, self-identified themselves as Dalits, who had an Ambedkarian vision, if you will, of how they saw power, how they saw villages, which is very different from uh, how you 
if you want to start off decentralization, there's an assumption that that you could kind of somehow yield power at the local level, uh, and with, it ignores the kind of elites' power, the caste power, class power, the landlords that have had their say in years of contract raj and 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 whatnot, right? So, so the idea that you know, I mean, there are, I think we can get to the disagreements and the problems that this come comes with, right? As you point out, but the first starting point is that they would basically say that this is. You know, they look at villages differently. They look at reddies. They look at you know caste, um, uh, and they the idea of actually having uh, a decentralization is decentralization for whom? Who gets power, right? And so there are lots of changes that are happening in terms of the political leaders, and that's all welcome. Uh, direct changes to happen. It's a long process that one goes through. But the interim, you have a highly unequal setting. If you actually, they would say, and I agree with it, that if you actually hit play and you say that, hey, we want to decentralize, we have somehow, we want to give money to the local people, we're not Kerala yet. They're going to say, well, we have uh, the people who would hire these laborers uh, would be the contractors who are very powerful and they've done it so all the time. And so we want to make sure that we um, be careful about how the uh, you know who gets power, right? And so, so, so that's uh, Rajesh. Just uh, just kind of interject for a second. I mean, this is essentially a modern day version of the Gandhi Ambedkar debate, right? I mean, Gandhi had this idea that India lives in her villages. If we just give panchayats enough power. That's the kind of path to reform where Ambedkar, as a Dalit with firsthand experience in the village, saw them, you know, famously, right, as dens of localism, of inequity, and so on and so forth, and, and wanted to actually minimize the amount of power they have because for him, villages and caste were inextricably linked. Yes, thanks. Yeah, so exactly. So that's so in that view, that's the that's the view that these bureaucrats actually uh, uh, shared. But they they were not so so first of all. Enrega is a central program. It's a federal program, right? And there is a subnational power, meaning the states. In fact, that's getting questioned now with the with the current government. We can get back to you know decentralization at what stage? You know the the bureaucrats who are sitting in the subnational state of Andhra Pradesh had control. Uh, that so in in you know in in the discussion. So there is some discretion. There's a lot of discretion at the sub at the subnational state level. Now the question is the ideal vision of having panchayats or the villages to actually have a lot of power as opposed to having these bureaucrats run the show. The the Andhra model, or hesitate to use the word model process, has two approaches, right? One is this controlling power through tech and whatnot from the bureaucrats at the top. The second form of, again, a top-down process, again, is social auditors who are, again, from the outside, many of them are Dalits, who are, are, are and sons and daughters of uh, Indrega workers, who are... Who are part? Who are basically the eyes and ears of the of of the workers? So I, you know, this idea of participatory bureaucracy, I've, I've you know, kind of adopted to kind of describe the process of, you know, not so much a sandwich completely because it's not mobilization from the bottom that comes and meets the top, but it's that's why there are two different top-down processes. One is through tech, the other is through the social audit process that tries to go and finds out door to door, meeting all these workers and trying to have them have a say in the records, right? The social audit process, I, as I say in the book, you know, people talk about opening up records. This is a process, again, it's far, I mean, I want to be very clear. This is, you know, there's a lot of theory in this, you know, practice is very contested. If you read the book, there's an attempt to rewrite the state records, right? 
through the vision or through the through how marginalized people see it, meaning they ask you, Milan, did you work on this land or not? Did you get paid or not? This is the amount of money that was spent in the village. Did they spend or not? Right. So the idea that you get to have a say um, in that process, it's not decentralization. It's not you know uh, outsourcing the state or you know. In fact, in the paper, I kind of doc, you know try and open up. Uh, discuss uh, the literature to see what are the different state, you know, you know, street empowering street level bureaucrats. A lot of different possibilities, and and I think that's the way to go. But I think the in the interim, this offers an alternate pathway. Not so much this will sustain forever, but at least um, in the interim, this this may be a, a, a viable uh, pathway to kind of at least enter to the debate between centralization and decentralization. So so, so there's a big debate going on about centralization, decentralization. Another big debate about uh, in, in this book is, is, is about the role of technology and development. And the debate in India today, as you know better than most, is highly polarized, right? You see in one corner the kind of techno-optimists who see technology as a way of revolutionizing service delivery and benefits transfer, right? Minimizing inefficiencies, um, uh, expanding inclusion. Uh, Then in the other corner, you have critics who see technology as really evading, alighting many of the major issues of state capacity uh, and human resources, and and while trying maybe to, to, to minimize errors of exclusion, um, actually um, create new eras of, of, of exclusion. And so, you know, as you step back, reflecting on this work, you know, given your own exploration, where, where do you sort of end up? You know, how do you kind of negotiate these two polar extremes? Yeah, that's uh, a great question. And there is a term called solutionism. That's uh, Evgeny Morozov coined it, I believe, which basically has this the thing you described, right? Which is, you know, there's fundamental political economy questions, of power that's there, you leave that aside and you f- focus on things that you can solve. So th- that's the idea of solutionism. So you kind of try and fix problems that you can solve and then leave the problems that are hard. And then this idea will, you know, produces, you know, a kind of a different way of thinking about an anti-politics machine uh, of some sorts, where you kind of, treat, you know, as you said, keep fixing things and it doesn't really address any problems. It creates new problems. Uh, so that's real. And even patching, I think, is distinct, analytically distinct, from solutionism, but I, as I show in the book at several points, it can has a tendency to kind of bleed into it, meaning it can conflate itself with this idea of solutionism, where the once you actually have uh, infrastructure like this, the bureaucrats can tend to kind of uh, keep changing things because they can do it. Uh, and that results in some cases a worse outcomes, right? So so that's definitely a, you know, a kind of a point well taken and I discussed it in the book. But your larger question about, you know, what should we, how should we think about uh, tech? You know, uh, I mean, here I should throw all my cards and I used to be a software developer writing code and, and you know, working years to kind of, you know, erase that background. But I think now I, on hindsight, I feel like, you know, tech is a tool, like the fact that we're having a conversation, you know, conversation of the podcast, wonderful tool. It lets us connect. Uh, here, I'd say that in, in the, in the case that I examined, um, rather than having a magic bullet, the idea which the Andhra bureaucrats did not have, they were not techno determinists. They were willing to, you know, try and change technology, create processes that are socio-technical, meaning they just did not just resolve around technology. They created ways to 
go around it, the whole social audit process, or even with technology, with you having supervisors, allows for certain different configuration uh, and th- things that you can change over time, allows for perhaps uh, an alternate pathway, goes against the kind of Aadhaar, uh, uh, debate, and I initially wanted to avoid that debate, as you know, like in the, in the book, I only ended up uh, talking about it at the end of the book because I had to, because I, initially I was maybe naive about what Adar was doing uh, and Andhra, Adar was not there and Andhra had her own sophisticated biometric system and 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 like John Rez recently said, like, hey, this is, maybe this is the model that we should uh, adopt. And it's not one thing, right? And, you know, I know we have like, you know, Karthik studied this under a model and he had this biometrics and has an RCT and show the effects. But I, I hopefully, you know, I show that there are many other things they have done and that has led to, uh, you know, uh, improving the program. And so my answer to your question directly is tech can be useful as long as you are willing to drop tech uh, and change tech. And in some cases, you know, in the U.S., the same debate's happening, right, with, like, criminal justice reform. You know, maybe Sindhil Mulan might disagree with me, but, you know, there are cases where you might say, you know, hey, no to tech uh, uh, or, or database systems because it might lead to uh, a lot more uh, worse outcomes. And so there, are, there is a case to be made to have, uh, you know, all the adjectives you want, right, in tech, because it's one of those things where you could, you need to at some point stop, in some cases, you know, plunge in with the idea that you can actually be very political. I mean, I think the main thing that I want to uh, leave, uh, you know, I'll say, I'll stop at this point, is I want to, I'm, I'm in the book, I'm also challenging, I'm also outside and I'm giving talks, I want to basically say this following point. Just because people use technology need not come from a technocratic imagination, right? It can come from a very political imagination, which you can disagree with. Patching leads to worse things, right? It, there's no, it's not a normative concept that somehow it leads to good things. But the idea that using technology is technocratic is something that I want to challenge because it is very polit- could be very political uh, and needs to be seen uh, for its for an evaluated. Uh, uh, and and not just be dismissed. Oh, this is technocratic fixes. They're actually very political fixes. So, so Rajesh, I want to ask you something that that goes beyond the scope of of your book, with your indulgence, which is um, a larger question about the politics of NREGA. Uh, the the government in power came to power in two thousand and fourteen, wanting to slash NREGA. Um, Prime Minister Modi famously told Parliament that he would keep the program around as a monument to the UPA government's policy failures, right? This was the previous Congress-led UPA government which legislated this act. Uh, In the end, something very interesting happened, which is that the government has been immensely reliant on NREGA, especially during the pandemic. We've had now many years of uh, economic slowdown. And so I wonder, you know, as you kind of think about India's political economy, what is the role that NREGA plays? Why have governments found it so difficult to get rid of it, even when they campaigned on that basis. And is it here to stay? Yeah. So so I remember when I was in the field work after 18 months of work and talking to uh, about Indrega, every single radio, in fact, I, I can say this without surveys and, you know, ethnographic work, people worry about, you know, I guess how sure you are about things because you spend some time. But I'm very sure now, like, as enough readies, almost unanimously, landowners is a proxy for readies that I'm using. Uh, 
in, in these countries that hated Andrega because they basically said the same thing that you would imagine hearing from these landlords. Well, you know, Andrega is impl- you know, basically making workers lazy. They don't work hard enough. They are coming to the work site. They barely have the energy to do it. And so we should get rid of it. And that's not happened. Uh, you know, uh, and, and again, I, in the chapter, I describe why, because first of all, there was a first mile compromise. It's, it's not 365 days, it's 100 days. And so it's per family. So there's a little bit of a, a big, a, a huge compromise at the, initially to kind of restrict the program. And so the big landlords who are not really opposed to it, the small landlords are the ones who are actually trying to fight it, change the times. And what's left with them is to kind of try and see when they could when they could have Andrega open during agriculture seasons when they want the labor. Uh, and the second thing that the, there's a lot of attention, a clamor for, and again, it's something that I ended the book saying that would be a disservice to laborers, bargaining powers and all the benefits that you get, is this idea of linking Andrega with agricultural work. I mean, I know we have farm crisis, a lot of important things need to be done, but this idea of, of uh, subsidizing, uh, which is what the uh, you know the the landlords demands that the, the farmers demands at the local level, is to basically make workers work on uh, farmlands, and Andrega money will subsidize it, and, th- and that's great. But what it'll do is it'll completely cut out all the benefits that you you know that you see in the program in terms of bargaining power, in terms of well-being, in terms of giving them some opportunity for workers to kind of have an independent, have some competition at the local level to kind of vie for the labor, right? And so so I think that's something uh, so far has not happened. Uh, and, and and so that's that's one outcome that uh, the the thing that I am, again, I, it's very hard to, I mean, I've not studied this, but I've seen this as a point that the one, you're right that the Modi didn't fundamentally come and squash the program, which is something that it would have been a politically hard thing to do because there's such a strong demand on the countryside. While I know how Reddy's hated it, all the laborers loved it because it gave them some amount of uh, of uh, alternate ways to make money. Uh, women benefited from it a lot, and obviously the pandemic became like a source of uh, source of livelihood for many of them. But the one thing that maybe the the, the the government is doing is killing it or trying to kill it by slow bleeding it by essentially not paying people. So if you notice, a lot of reports have now come out, delay payments. If I am, yeah, I want to work on Enrega, but if I'm not getting paid, if there's delays, and some of them are six months, years, three months, I mean, lots of delays in funds. Imagine it's a federal program, money is coming from the central. And so if they don't give money, and if you're waiting for your, and these are very marginalized workers, right? If you're not got your daily wage, you're not going to go to work on Enrega uh, work because you you know you want money and so you will so that's one thing that's happening i mean i'm not saying that's a conscious strategy but uh but uh, you know but uh, that is something that is very uh, ominous for the program because it is you see reports and reports after delay payments uh, so they're not actually going after the program directly uh but the states actually the center is not releasing funds to uh, you know, different states and, and delaying it. And, and that has, uh, you know, presumably an effect of, you know, reducing demand, because if you don't get paid, who's going to show up to work? Uh, but that's the, that's a real worry uh, on Andrega's side. Uh, so Rajesh, let me, you know, uh, m- maybe bring this to an end by by asking you um, to reflect on, on on one of the big takeaways, I think, from your book, which has, frankly, a lot of resonance for uh, development thinking and practice more broadly, way beyond India. Um, 
you know, one of the lessons is that transparency is not a silver bullet for better development and governance. Uh, you have this nice line where you say, quote, transparency doesn't lead to change unless someone with power causes the change, end quote. Um, do you think that the development community in India and elsewhere, you spend a lot of time with them at Georgetown in the field, have they internalized this message or are they, st are they fighting the wrong fight in your view? I mean, I think uh, for the longest time, I was thinking, you know, transparency is a buzzword, right? And it's become lost to shine uh, because the idea of sunlight as a disinfectant, right, cures, you know, everything. Now, I've introduced in this book a metaphor called flashlight, right? Even the cover has people holding it. It's a very political idea where, you know, you see what you want to, what you want others to see and who gets to hold the flashlight. So, and it's, and, and there's a fight between like, you know, transparency. So there's a politics of transparency that I, that, that, that enacts that goes on. Uh, in terms of a broader discourse about how people think about transparency and and uh, and, and and I think the larger idea you see a lot of studies about you know hey transparency is working giving like you know uh, politicians uh, uh, records uh, uh, it's not working they do a randomized control trial and the idea being transparency working transparency not working and they give because because of how start studies to be studied they give this like kind of very simple information to a one-off information that's standardized across everybody and, and then might find the effect. And I think Jonathan Fox actually points out that you need actually, I mean, probably says the same thing, or maybe I got it from him, this idea that it's a very, uh, it needs implementation, it needs power, right? So you can't look at, uh, you know, you, you need to make efforts to actually implement a, a transparency program and you have to deal with power. Uh, and you can't just somehow, uh, loose and like like i think there's a lot of like um criticism and, and skepticism about somehow transparency is not working i would think that that's just because the the interventions because it is focused on evaluating it in a certain way has led to uh, a very sterile thinking of transparency rather than a very powerful idea that you know right to information actually has an effect people want to be able to uh you know be able to take action on it and so you have to create a framework like a social audit process where you're not just um, putting wall painting in countryside or putting a website up and somehow think that workers who are marginalized are going to take action on them, right? You need, a, you need to spend time investing in infrastructure that allows for marginalized voices to be able to uh, take advantage of this platform. So I think that there's a lot, yeah, I, I, you know, in fact, yeah, I, I, I think that the, hopefully the book offers uh, at least a, not necessarily a success story, but at least a possibility of what is the kind of information infrastructure that needs to be developed in order for, you know, transparency uh, projects to actually have, uh, you know, see the light of the day. My guest on the show this week is the scholar Rajesh Viraraghavan. His book is called Patching Development, Information, Politics, and Social Change in India. You know, we often get this criticism that uh, those of us in think tanks and in the media and elsewhere who are sitting outside of India focus on negative news coverage. Uh, this is actually a positive story, but is a positive story told with warts and all about how progress is possible, but it's messy. It's iterative, it's gradual, involves compromises. Um, Rajesh, it's, it's a real achievement uh, as a book. Congrats and thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much, Milan. 
Grant the Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun-Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest-growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthemasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.